0: My guest today is Catherine Kaminski. She is the Chief Research Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Alpha Simplex, which is an Affiliated Investment Manager of Natixis. This conversation today covers why your market views may not line up with financial theory and whether that's okay, the detachment of the market from fundamentals, you know, the nature of how the market's changed, and how to capture these behavioral aspects as a systematic investor. We also look at how to incorporate the current market conditions in a systematic model, the risk of feedback loops when there's a lot of investors on the same trade, the danger potentially of being short at a time of immense Fed support, and finally, what does she mean by the term crisis alpha? I hope you enjoy the conversation. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, you know, for a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast, they will be thinking about the, you know, the financial theory that they've learnt from university, from, you know, other sorts of academia, CFA, and saying to themselves, hold on a second, the financial theory is not lining up with what's happening in the markets today. You know, how do you think about it in your role?
1: I mean... That's a fantastic question, because honestly, I'm someone who's taught finance theory for a while at certain points in my career, and I think this year is a fantastic example of how things may not be as they seem. I mean, honestly, seeing rates go negative, it's very confusing from a finance theory perspective. Seeing prices go negative in oil this year, and also just seeing the type of moves and dislocations we saw this year, coupled with the fact that most people are very quick to realize that the fundamentals and the economy is looking very different from the market itself. And the way that I like to think about this is that many times the market is very efficient. And in certain periods, in fact, we can have sustained periods where, you know, the market is more run by expectations and emotion um, and sort of our ability to try and maneuver where the market is going as things change substantially and there's nothing better of a shock for the markets than a health crisis or Um, Any of the large disruptions that the markets have experienced over history, whether it's the Industrial Revolution or the tech bubble or just something that changes the way that we do business, the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we monitor and manage our risk. And I think that's where we are today. And now I think about it as expectations and emotion running markets more than fundamentals in some ways.
0: So is it possible to have a plan for this type of market environment?
1: That's part of our process. So even in the most extreme market scenario, like this year, we had a plan in place and our models adjusted to it and they adapt to changing volatility environments, to changing volume environments um, and adjusted to those uh, undulations accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is sort of the way systematic Models are supposed to be built in the sense that they're built to have the ability to change if the fundamentals change, you know, it's hard to know when that's going to happen. So we want to be as malleable as possible in terms of how we can detect changes and how we adjust um, our positions over time.
0: I wonder what your thoughts are on a lot of asset managers and their ability to actually capture some of these behavioral aspects. You, know, you talk about the emotions that that drive a lot of the market and the way the market works obviously is a is the marginal buyer and seller. It plays a very large impact on it. You know, do a lot of asset managers have the ability to capture some of these behavioral aspects in their models?
1: I think it's hard because behavior is complex and people behave differently as individuals than they behave as groups. And what we are really captivating on as a momentum type investor, someone who's looking at overall global trends, is when we have sustained offsets in groups of individuals that are having similar behavior. And so it's not at all surprising in a year like this year that you would see a lot of that type of reaction because we're definitely seeing people driven much more by the winds of hope versus the, you know, the threat of and fear associated to um, the potential risk of this particular crisis we recently endured. So I think those moments in history is when trends and also behavioral aspects are much more predominant in the markets. Um, That doesn't mean that they're pervasive and that you're always going to have a great environment for um, for using thinking about emotions, because I think emotions have to dominate for us to actually see uh, some of the trends that would sort of defy efficient market type theories, because as we all know, the market is the best estimate of what the real price is. Um, And so that means that you shouldn't be so much there shouldn't be so much marginal information except for when things are changing. Um, And we're seeing some sort of equilibrium change in the markets that that is perhaps unexpected or unincorporated in market prices today. Um, We can definitely say that the experience we had this year is an experience none of us were really sure how that was going to play out or what that meant. Therefore, uh, the amount of that emotions could actually drive markets, I think, seems logical in, in this type of environment.
0: As we record this podcast today, we've had a little bit of a, a bump in markets. The volatility has, has come back. You know, one of the things that I would, I'm curious to get your thoughts about is as you think about the market, you can think about it in being detached from reality, which we come back to, the market views not lining up with the, the financial theory. But these processes where the markets can be detached from reality can, can last for, for years. Um, we saw the tech bubble in 2000, you know, 90, 97, 98, there was the crash there from from the Russian crisis and LTCM. You have these sort of issues that keep popping up, but, you know, they're, they're building. There's these hidden risks that are building underneath, you know, as an investor and as an asset manager, how do you think about the potential hidden risk that that lies in the market at the same time as you've got to be make sure that you hit your benchmarks and still perform?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as a systematic trader, we think about how we can react to changes in the markets. And I'm much more of a fan of the adaptive markets hypothesis and thinking about markets more as an ecology and sort of an organism that's changing over time that depends on who's there, what they're doing, and what Things people are doing at this moment. So a lot of people have asked us questions about things like volatility targeting and other impacts. The truth is the current market ecology includes a lot of people who move faster today than they did 10 years ago. So therefore, the way that markets are going to move are going to depend on who's there and who's participating in them. Because at the end of the day, the market is made up of people and what they do. And so this year, what we saw in an environment like COVID, what was surprising to me was just the sheer speed in terms of drop versus depth Uh, depth versus width of the overall crisis was one of the strongest in history um, in the last 20 years. And that kind of shows just the velocity at which things move in today's world. Um, As a systematic manager, that means that we have to be attuned to trying to think about not over fitting our decisions to the past and actually trying to adapt our systems and the way that we think about things to at least be more reactive if necessary um, in these type of events. So I do think that, you know, today's trading in today's world is very, very different than the tech bubble, uh, but there's also similarities. I mean, clearly um, you can have bubbles like the tech bubble, which Uh, What was fascinating to me about the tech bubble is it had probably four key waves um, within the tech bubble. And even uh, the 2008 great financial crisis had, one could argue, two different waves as well, early 08 and also later in 08. And what that shows is that, you know, really, we don't really know, even if we think that the COVID event is over, um, we still could have a lot of challenges. I'm just not sure what those might be yet. But it's really about trying to think about who's there and what's happening in the markets and which players are actually in you know reacting and acting in them today.
0: Well, that's a really difficult piece, absolutely, because the participants now are supposedly becoming more sophisticated, right? And I use that in quotations, because they're all using the same sort of VAR models. They're using vol targeting, like you mentioned. We're seeing a lot more passive flows, we're seeing more momentum style traders, we're seeing low, low vol style strategies that are being employed. Do you feel that that all these, you know, this convergence or this this congregation of all these factors together at the same time is actually making the market more unstable?
1: Um, I think that, you know, unstable, we'd have to define what we think about unstable, right? So if unstable means it goes down sometimes. Um, That wouldn't be unstable to me. I think what's concerning is just how bimodal the market has become, um, where you have bouts of sort of smooth sailing like August, and then suddenly everyone awakes and decides that everything is terrible in two days. Uh, We had similar type of events in June, and it's almost like volatility in some sense is much more bimodals. There's moments of calm and then moments of crash. And that to me is a little concerning from a classic equilibrium type perspective is it kind of means that things are okay till they're not. Um, And I think for all investors, this is very challenging because in some sense, um, if the market is that fragile, uh, we never know when that type of event might occur and how acceleratory it might be. Um, I know for myself and looking at positions and how things were moving in February, it was pretty scary to see how much uh, the market was able to fall in such a short period of time, if you think about what that means for value destruction. But then at the same time, you saw a large amount of sort of recalibration, um, buying buying the dip, and, and many institutions coming in saying, wait a minute, we're long-term investors. This is a massive reduction in the value of these assets, and we believe that the fundamental value is higher than this. And those investors came in and recalibrated the market quickly. Um, then some might argue that because of the resurgence, then you also saw retail investors start to fall into place, seeing the tremendous gains, perhaps also sitting at home wanting something to do um, in the equity markets. And you saw really sort of a fantastic momentum trade, one of the best months in uh, equities um, in history and in April and May, I mean, in April particularly. So you saw a lot of that, you know, follow on behavior. And so now the question is that I was actually quite surprised that we saw still such a big resurgence in August as well. Um, So to me, that seems to be the current dynamic, flipping between peaceful, happy, everything's fine, and everything's falling apart. And that's very consistent with a narrative of, you you know, trying to deal with crisis. I mean, when you deal with crisis day to day, it seems fine, but then sometimes you feel like the cards are falling down. And I think that's sort of the emotion that we've seen this year in the markets. We saw a couple little peaks into this type of behavior in '18, but this year we've really seen this come out in full force. Yeah,
0: as, a, as a systematic trader um, and a model builder, how do you then take these sort of changes in market regime that we're seeing? And embedded into your model.
1: What's, what's great about being a systematic trader, and I have to say this year, I've enjoyed being a systematic trader more than every any other year in the sense that we wake up every day and we don't have to make gut decisions. We plan our systems to build in reactive response to markets as they change. And we do this by trying to measure different um, trends and different approaches across multiple horizons, but also to incorporate different measures of volatility, volume, all of the above, so that our systems can actually start to measure market changes and adapt as those markets move. So, you know, as we saw markets changing earlier this year, our systems naturally measured that intraday volatility and volatility was rising, AKA that risk in the markets has been going up. And we also saw that there were some reversal in some of the signals that we saw, so AKA that um, things should perhaps be uh, changing directions. So I I definitely would say that our goal is for our systems to react to the markets, not for us to have to intervene or to overlay any sort of short-term emotional response. And I think this year, why I said I like being a systematic trader is it would be very difficult to make a call on any of the days where things are very difficult in the markets for numerous reasons. We all know that it's hard to make a decision in the heat of the moment. So as systematic traders, we believe that we need to build in intuition into the way that we build our portfolios and have our portfolios react to the world as it changes, um, as opposed to trying to sort of tinker or go in and sort of make gut decisions in the heat of the moment. That That is definitely a hard thing for any of us to do, and we all know, based on <laughs> neuropsychology that we make different decisions in emotional states than we do um, when we're not under duress I know all of us probably understand exactly what that means
0: oh look this has been a, a year of a lot of duress for people from a health perspective and just also then losing their jobs potentially and then you've had a, a lot of stimulus that then started some some gamblers moving to the market and you had your Robin Hood traders using the market as a as a bit of a, a game for a while, which caused some more volatility. It, it's a very difficult time, absolutely, to, to understand, particularly if you want to link your investment decisions to fundamental, or particularly if you are a value investor. Um, it's not a great time to, to be a value investor. But I wanted to go back to the market more broadly. The market is obviously different assets you can trade, commodities, currencies, and so forth. What, what do your signals tell you about where is best to put on these bets? You know, you, you mentioned a lot of the signals that you look for um, around parts of the market you like to trade. Has that changed significantly given what we've seen in the last you know six months with, with COVID?
1: So what's interesting is that people always say to me that stimulus and government intervention will, you know, Manipulate the markets and destroy trends and and I say that's correct, but it's also incorrect because stimulus and um, other intervention creates new trends. Um, And so that's exactly what we see is that it won't create the same trend that perhaps it was trying to avoid but Every action creates subsequent reactions in markets that re- create new trends that are interesting for us. So I know in 2019, one of the best trends we saw was actually uh, yields going down so low in the US. But then this year, we saw massive movements in commodities. We've also seen interesting uh, dollar trends um, and a you know somewhat of a inflation theme that has been emerging um, across futures markets the second half of this year, well, this year feels like it's been a long year, but basically since q three began. And what's interesting with that is it kind of shows that there's a trend somewhere for some reason um, everywhere. And so what we're trying to do is just find ways to measure across different asset classes, across different speeds, across different methodologies where are things moving and follow where those movements occur. That also means that risk allocation is going to be not stagnant. It's going to vary. So in some years, there's fantastic trends going on in uh, commodity markets or currencies, and you may see less things going on in bonds. To be honest, bonds have been pretty range bound since April. Uh, but we've seen tremendous moves in equities. We've also seen this reflation move in commodities, and we've seen um, one of the most spectacular uh, devaluations of the dollar in, in years. So, I mean, it's been a very interesting environment. You're seeing some changes um, throughout the markets this year that indicate that, yes, the same trend that they're controlling is Maybe not there, but that creates new trends because as things change, things move in different ways.
0: You talk a lot about trends and risk and risk control and so forth. Do you feel that this market environment has also changed the length of time of your trades? You Are know, they getting shorter and you need to be more careful about how long you keep particular trades on in this environment because things mean revert quicker or do they take longer?
1: So that's, again, something that we we build into the way we think about markets and we're measuring them at different speeds. And we find that markets are either slower or faster um, for different asset classes over different time horizons. So you can have a year where um, it may be better to be a slow equity investor. For example, um, if you had just ignored and not looked at your accounts in the equity markets for this year and been a non-trading investor, surprisingly enough, you'd actually be up this year, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, And you would have never looked at what happened in between. So what we see is that we try to measure across multiple different speeds and different horizons, because asset classes move at different speeds at different times, and they react differently uh, to different environments. So we have to try to build that in uh, and put risk where risk is best served. Um, And sometimes that means that Things change quickly. Sometimes it means it's slower. The biggest mover this summer has been currencies. Um, before that, we saw a lot of commodities. Before we saw equities move a lot. So you can see that the world is dynamic, and we as systematic traders have to build that into our process.
0: You know, as you're building these these things into the process, you know, how much do you think about feedback loops in terms of your influence as you're investing and other people do similar things to you? And the potential for this feedback loop to continue and then potentially create other sorts of crises um, that that come because so many people are on the same trade.
1: No, I I would agree. This is something, this is sort of a chicken and egg problem that we think about a lot. Um, It's harder to imagine Uh, being able to impact global equity markets because they're so massive and so large. But we definitely do question sometimes how how important our impact is in some of the smaller markets. We tend to try to limit our size in those type of markets to avoid some of that. But in general, um, that's one of the key questions that we have to think about is how much is this um, being inflated by people having a similar trade? Um, and that's challenging because it's very hard to measure that. It's very hard to know um, what's driving every market participant out there because in some sense, all investors are trend followers, right? So when we see things go up, we want to buy them. When they go down, we want to sell them, Um, not just us. um, That's individual investors as well. So You know, trend following is sort of a natural human behavior. It captivates on the fact that there's positive feedback loops occasionally and how people behave. And, you know, we just try to have a very systematic approach to it as opposed to a sort of ad hoc approach. And I think over time, diligence and risk management is what makes the difference um, there in terms of how how you can actually manage that return profile. Mm
0: -hmm. You're well known for the term crisis alpha. I wanted to give you the opportunity to explain what does that mean, particularly in the markets that we see today and and how would you see that that actually works? How, what are you actually capturing as part of that process?
1: That's a great question. And um, back after 2008, um, I was very fascinated by systematic trading and by the rules that investors use to make decisions in markets, because obviously, you know, human beings use rules to make decisions, whether it's about what they eat for dinner or (laughs) how they behave. Um, And so what fascinated me was how very classic trend following systematic rules tended to do very well during periods of stress or crisis in markets. And in some sense, the critique of a systematic strategy would be that markets are efficient. There's It's impossible to measure the trends and follow them and, and actually find um, opportunities. Whereas what I found was that during periods of crisis, when things change, it's precisely those moments where you see extended trends across wide ranges of asset classes, which are somewhat hard to predict um, prior to those type of events. And so I'd coined this term called crisis alpha, which is the opportunities found during periods of market crisis or stress. And I made the term general because in fact, any type of stress or dislocation is in some sense a crisis. The same thing could be said about an oil crisis, or if yields go up, I think a lot of us would call it a crisis as well. So anytime things are difficult and people are in a state of somewhat emotional distress or things are changing, that's when you can actually see sustained changes and price moves in the market. Put more simply, when things get difficult and crazy in markets, at the bottom, it's actually best to look at where the market is moving. And what we really do is measure where the market's going. And during periods when things change, the market actually has a lot of information about where things could potentially go. Just to tell you one other anecdotal story, um, I was quite shocked at the beginning of this year because sitting in January, I myself was unaware of how pervasive the COVID crisis would be. And I think us in the US, we were sort of not aware of how much it was going to be across the globe. It was sort of a naive. that can't happen kind of scenario. And what was very scary was that when we looked at the trends in global asset prices prior to February, there were massive trends already building in some of the asset classes that we trade. So for example, yields were already starting to plummet. So that meant people were getting nervous. And also we saw commodity prices starting to fall. And what does that mean? It means that people were concerned about demand. So we saw these sort of very classic behavior. People were still holding on to equities thinking, I think this is gonna be okay. But we saw these trends building of some sort of defensive posture concern that all came out um, late February. And so what was surprising to me is that other asset classes were actually already anticipating some of the concerns, but not really sure until the trigger um, from the equity drawdown occurred.
0: One of the things that I really want to ask you about is you, you you talk about the trends, particularly in crisis, and as during those periods we see a lot of downward trends as well. You know, how comfortable are you to be a short seller? You know, and be on these short trends in these types of environments where we know that central banks can come in. There's a lot of treasury support. Is that trade still um, available to to investors?
1: So, I mean, I would say that we, we definitely go long and short. And there were short signals across the board um, by March. Um, and that is a very rare environment um, with the exception of bonds. Um, and so you saw, we definitely saw short signals and equities. They did not extend. Um, but these type of strategies, there are periods where those shorts will actually work. Um, if government intervention comes in and sort of builds those things up, then the trends are going to move. Um, You're actually right. It it is kind of a concern that we think about is that, you know, if, if there's a negative trend um, and, and, and we're starting to have short signals, how long um, will they stay around?
0: So what specifically are the short signals that that you would look for um, in, in the market environment?
1: So we would look at um, the overall momentum or direction of markets movements, especially in the shorter term. Um, And the positive thing with the way that we see the world is that three months from now, we might have a completely different portfolio. um, And that's what makes us so adaptable. And so we will see short positions from time to time. um, But we have to see consistent negative momentum in asset classes to be able to be confirmed to go short. Um, we saw some pretty large short positions in oil uh, that worked relatively well earlier this year. We did see some short positions in equities, but luckily they weren't too large because of the risk profile of equities already. Um, otherwise, being short at the bottom would have been quite difficult because of the V-shaped recovery in equities. Uh, but they were short signals across commodities due to decreased demand. Um, related to the COVID crisis that were relatively substantial um, earlier this year.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you is, you mentioned equities there as almost a homogenous group, but there are a lot of sectors and, and areas that that make up the equities, You know, the whole market. You know, how do you think about um, a particular short trade? Let's say, for example, in the equity space, do you think about it from a, a US market, from a, you know, a, a top 100? a particular sector like the airlines or an individual security, what do you look for in terms of finding those particular um, short opportunities?
1: So we tend to trade more global indices across different geographies. Um, So we don't have as much uh, inter sector exposure. Uh, But one thing that has been really interesting to follow has been the dependence of a lot of these indices on tech. Um, this is something that I've been very fascinated about, because in some sense, if you think about an index being diversified, a diversified index means that the predominant uh, driver of the returns is very diverse across um, those that index. And we're actually in a very interesting environment right now where tech, uh, as part of what Uh, what is going on right now has actually taken such a big uh, component of most of the indices out there. So that's something that I think is going to shake out and it already is this week, um, starting to shake out a little bit in the markets. And I think that um, it's something that is going to question people in terms of, if you just invest in the S and P 500 or any of these other large indices, you actually have a pretty large tech exposure. Um, So it's something we're, um, kind of grappling with in some sense we're looking more at different indices relative to each other um, and i think that's gonna be an interesting one to see
0: so given that you mentioned indices does that mean that you end up trading futures as part of your process is is that a fair assumption
1: yeah so futures are very efficient are a very efficient uh, type of contract for being able to take risk exposure across a wide range of asset classes um, with relatively efficient collateral utilization. Um, And that's why for us, uh, if we're looking at a more macro global trend type of approach, we're not looking into the minutia of individual um, stocks relative to the index and all of those things. We're sort of more of a big picture um, exposure in terms of strategies. There's definitely opportunities to do that in other in other contracts, but I think also at the the size and sort of the way that we trade the markets, it's more about using global futures to take a position about uh, overall level and direction of asset classes.
0: You 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 talk a lot about volatility and and rate regime changes and so forth. Do you actually take any positions within the the, the vol space? Like is there a particular, uh, any any, um, positions that you put to take advantage of a vol spike, for example?
1: I would love to do that because I think vol trading is very fun. Um, It's just very hard to get the timing right on those things. Um, So we have implicit volatility exposure, but we do not trade volatility explicitly. I know there are some systematic managers that do. Um, It isn't the easiest thing to time and, and, and try to systematize just based on the somewhat Uh, Clumpiness of of volatility in some sense. There are managers out there that do a good job at, at doing this. We use volatility more as a barometer for the level of risk in markets and we measure it across multiple different horizons. So volatility for us is a currency. We think about every asset As having some sort of exchange rate for what notional amount of money you put into it relative to how much volatility you get for that. And so we try to balance out how to allocate across different opportunities with volatility in mind. Um, this type of year is an exciting year to see that because being able to look at interday volatility and other faster measures was actually a very useful uh, tool in the COVID environment because interday volatility was off the charts very quickly. And that gives you a lot more data, a lot quicker than a daily, uh, just a daily measure. Mm-hmm. Of volatility. So we try to look at that both long term and short term. We're not trading it explicitly, but it is impacting everything that we do.
0: So final question. Um, and it comes back to the impact of central banks. And you you talked just briefly about the risk of interest rates. You know, what is the biggest fear that you have in markets that you know threatens the portfolio? Is, is it the potential rise of interest rates and the high correlation between asset classes? Is, is, is that the biggest problem? What do you think it is?
1: I think. You know, I think the biggest challenge that a lot of investors are going to, the thing I've been afraid of for a long time is rising rates. They just never seem to rise. Um, So I think I'm more afraid of if rates never rise, what other things will happen? Like what other disastrous things could be hidden under the rug? It's kind of like cleaning your room and, you know, kind of keep pushing things under there. At some point, does something else happen? Like you find a lot. A lot of stuff under there that you don't want, um, and so I would say that I'm more concerned right now about a inflationary move or something that could have a massive impact on what we own today. So if what we own today and our our currency and other issues becomes devalued, or if we have a situation where um, you know future cash flows become undervalued that's concerning and that's affecting the future generations and, and our children and others in terms of what the opportunities will be. So I think that's what I'm more concerned about is inflation, uh, steepen curves, and I'm looking for things about, indications that that could actually happen. Uh, most people don't think it will, but as a systematic trader, we know that anything can happen and especially things that you don't want to happen can happen um, in markets.
0: Thanks, Katie. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.